Thank you for taking the time to view this message online. You can connect with us more through our comment section of this video, through our Facebook page, or through our website, nhgj.org. We're in a series of messages on the book of Job. Specifically, we're looking at how it is that we find good counsel in the midst of difficult times. Job is such a good picture of this because as we looked in our first message, Job went through extraordinary pain and suffering. In just the first two chapters, as his life unfolds, we find ourselves really feeling bad for Job. Here's a man who is viewed as righteous, one who loved God, wanted to serve God, and did all the right things, and yet finds himself in very dire circumstances, losing his children, losing his wealth, and coming to a place where the last we see him in chapter 2 is he's sitting there with sores on his body, scraping those sores with broken pottery in a pile of ash. And from his wife, he gets this counsel, really bad counsel. Job's wife tells him, why don't you just end all of this? Curse God and die. Why save your integrity, Job? That's where we left off from the previous message was this bad counsel that comes from shared grief, pain and suffering. When the individual is so close to us or we're so close to the situation that we can't separate ourselves from it. We just view it through this lens of self-justification. Job's wife essentially told him, whatever you want to do, just do it. Just get on with it. Why stay with God? Why carry honor? Why live with integrity if God isn't going to honor you, if he's not going to bless you? What does it matter anyways? And unfortunately, far too often, that's the message that we hear from others, or maybe we're tempted to give to somebody. Why serve God if it's not going to pay off, so to speak, with blessing and with longevity of life? Why go through holding on and, and long suffering and patience with our integrity if we're still going to experience calamity and difficulty in life? Well, that's the first bit of bad counsel that Job received, and it was from his wife right there in chapter 2. But unfortunately for Job, it doesn't end there. We're going to see in this message that Job had three friends and a fourth who was along, a younger man, who was going to give him counsel. But the counsel that they give, it seems that it fits a particular scenario or a pathway in the way that God relates to Job. But again, it's not good. It's not helpful. As we look at it, we're going to understand and you're going to hear some common themes that maybe somebody has spoken to you at one point or another, or maybe you've given somebody else in counsel. And we're going to understand a little bit more clear about why it's bad counsel and how it is that we can turn towards more biblical, more sound counsel than what Job's friends gave to him. Join with me in prayer, and we're going to open up with the end of Job uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3, and uh, then go a little bit deeper into the book as we look at Job's friends and their counsel and what they have to say. Lord, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you that it comes alive to us. And Lord, in this time, we recognize that we need good counsel. Lord, with so many voices over the internet, out on the airwaves, uh, in our communities, 
Lord, so many opinions being thrown around. We need to be able to turn to your word and we need to listen to your Holy Spirit as you guide us and lead us. And Lord, it's our desire to be voices of good counsel in the midst of everything that's happening, to not add to the clutter. So Lord, help us. Help us to understand your word. Help it to come alive within us and then help us to live it out in ways that bless others and guide us in truth in you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we said, Job received counsel from his friends. And it begins in Job chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. Then it continues on, the, our section we're going to read, to chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard all of this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Anamathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, this is the good part of the text. They did the right thing. They came upon Job, and they just couldn't believe their eyes, the calamity that had come upon him. And so they joined him in his grieving without saying a word. And as they sat there in silence, not saying a word, Job is the one who opens his mouth first. And it begins a poem. And over the coming chapters throughout the book of Job, it really is one poem after another, verse by verse. Job is going to speak. Then a friend is going to speak. Job is going to give a rebuttal. Another friend is going to speak. Job is going to give a rebuttal. Another friend will speak. You get the idea. It's a very poetic layout for the book of Job. But what Job opens with is a poem, a very dark poem about how he wishes he was never born. It says, after this, starting in chapter 3, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. This is such a dark place for Job. In fact, if you've ever felt misery or been in a difficult place, I think Job is one of those where you could just simply read through that and you would feel like Job is uttering words that you could identify with if you've ever been in such a difficult or dark place. Job rues the day of his birth. He laments that he was ever born. For 26 verses, Job speaks about the misery related to his birth and how he wished it, wishes it had never come about. And he finishes his poem with these verse, verses, uh, verses 24 and 26 of chapter 3. For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear has come upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. 
And with this, Job utters his complaint, his deep sadness for his birth and the woes that have come upon him. And now that Job has opened his mouth, his friends have their responses ready to instruct Job of how to get out of his pain. And it begins with Eliphaz the Temanite. He offers his counsel. Job has instructed many, Eliphaz says. Job, you're a wise man. You've given a lot of counsel. You've been an example of righteousness. But now it's your turn, Job, to be the student. You're about to be schooled on why you're in the midst of this difficult time. Eliphaz lays out his argument before Job very kindly at first. He says, no person can be blameless before God. Even angels have not been without fault. God has found fault in even his servants, the angelic host. So certainly no man can be without fault. Job, you're not seeing this clearly. So God blesses without reason, but he does not punish without reason. God's generous, and so blessing comes, and we don't deserve it. But harm or punishment, that comes about because you've done something, Job. So when pain and suffering comes, it's because it's deserved. This is Eliphaz's counsel to Job. Job, you deserve this. When pain and suffering comes, it's deserved. So the conclusion is, Job, don't fear just repent. Repent of your wrong because his correction for wrongdoing leads you back to blessing and a prosperity. Embrace correction so that you can prosper once again. He's got it figured out in his mind. Eliphaz is counseling Job. Job, you, you've counseled others. Now let us counsel you. Do the right thing. Confess what you've done and blessing will surely come again. Do the right thing. This is his words in verse 27 of chapter 5. He says, Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Hear and know it for your good. They're consorting together and they're giving this counsel to Job and they say, Job, this is the right thing. You need to think about this clearly. You're not in the right, you're in the wrong. We turn to chapter 6, and as I mentioned before, it's a kind of a back and forth. So Job's reply comes, once again thick with anguish. Job is unrelenting in his sense of grief and being overwhelmed by his circumstances. But instead of taking the counsel of Eliphaz and confessing an unknown sin, he challenges Eliphaz and the others by way of his challenge. He challenges their instruction to him. Job replies to Eliphaz, if I've done wrong, tell me what you think I've done that's deserving of this. I'm not lying that I'm innocent, so my dread and my anguish is not misplaced. He counters back and says, if you think you know what I've done, then name it, but don't throw blanket accusation at me. Eliphaz, feeling like he's taken one and tried to give counsel to Job, he takes a seat and up to the podium steps Bildad, the Shuite. His response to Job is a little more aggressive. He says, Job, hold your tongue. <laughs> You're accusing God of injustice. This isn't right. We know how this works, Job. You know how God's justice works. Do good, receive good. Do wrong, receive punishment. Job, you are accusing God of injustice. Your children, in fact, oh my goodness, his Bildad's accusation, he says, your children were killed because of sin, not because of injustice. 
You reap what you sow, so start sowing goodness and blessing will come. Again, simplified justice, how Bildad presents it before Job. You reap what you sow, start sowing goodness and righteousness, and goodness will come your way. Blessing will come. Job's reply to Bildad is this. God is such an overwhelming force. Who can stand against him? If God decides to do something, who is going to stand in defense against him? I have no defense against God, even if I am blameless. And I believe I am, Job said. But how am I going to stand against God? He's such a force. There's nothing that will stand against him. But again, Job defends himself. He says, I stand upright, but my defense is useless because God will do whatever he wants. And since I have no defense, I'll just express, express my woes before all of you. Instead of accepting blame, I'm just going to continue to tell you I've done nothing wrong and I'm in anguish over the situation that has come upon me. Bildad the Shuite takes a seat and Zophar the Namathite takes his turn. <laughs> Again, the back and forth that takes place. Zophar begins this way. Whoa, <laughs> Job, what are you saying? You think you're righteous? But if God really gave you what you deserve, you would be even worse off than you are. We recognize, Job, that you're sitting here in ashes, scraping sores with pottery. But Job, this is God's compassion on you. If he gave you what you really deserve, you would be in for a whole lot more worse situation than this. So he tells Job to silence this idea that God is being unjust. Repent and you can be restored. Each one of them taking this similar approach. As Job defends himself, they get more aggressive with him. Job, please be quiet. We know how this works and you must have sin. Otherwise, this wouldn't be happening to you. Job's reply to Zophar, <laughs> he essentially says, Are you kidding? You think I don't know how we've been taught God's justice? I know do right and get blessing. You think I don't know this stuff? I know what you guys are talking about. But the reality is, Job defends himself. He says, but the reality is, God is doing this for no reason. I don't understand why all of this is happening to me. Chapter 13 of Job gives such a strong and powerful response to his friend's counsel. This is Job after he's heard some of these words of counsel come to him. Job 13, 1 to 5 says, Behold, my eye has seen all of this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I am not inferior to you, but I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. As for you, you whitewash with lies. Worthless physicians are you all. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. <laughs> if you're ever feeling like you're receiving bad counsel, I was going to say, maybe use this, but don't. That's pretty hard words that Job is speaking to his friends. You whitewash with lies, worthless physicians, you, all of you are. Oh, that you would keep silent and it would be your wisdom. Job's saying your silence would be the best thing you could do at this moment because your counsel is just hurting my ears and hurting my heart. I'm tired of trying to explain myself to you. You're not in my shoes. 
If we were to say it today, it would be something like, you're giving me memes and embroidered pillows for your counsel, and I'm pouring out my life. I would rather you just say, I don't know why this is happening, and just be quiet. Your counsel is worthless. Please be quiet. That's kind of a really loose paraphrase of what Job is saying, but he's overwhelmed by his friends trying to help him, and they're not helping him. Unfortunately... That doesn't stop them. We go through another round, but now they feel insulted by Job, so they take off the kid gloves, and they're ready to put Job in his place. Eliphaz, Job, you're not righteous at all, comes in and attacks him. Bildad, God only punishes those who deserve it. You're evil, Job. Zophar, you don't understand. Wicked people face calamity, not righteous. Job, you're a wicked man. One after another, they accuse him, and Job steps up to defend himself and expresses his grief, and he's just overwhelmed with the situation. Back and forth, the accusations against Job come at him, and he replies, declaring that he knows what they know. He understands the way they view the world and God's justice. But he is facing all of this pain and suffering without a just cause, and if he could, he would defend himself before God. He would be willing to stand before God and confess that he is a righteous man. There's nothing that he's done. Finally, one more person comes onto the scene in chapter 32 of all the friends. It's Elihu the Buzite. It says that Elihu burned with anger at Job. Up to this point, Elihu's been quiet. He hasn't said anything. We're told from the passage that Elihu is younger, and so he's been holding his tongue, letting the older men speak. But now he is angry. He's angry at Job because Job did not confess his sin. Elihu held back, but now he's going to give his counsel, and boy, does he ever. Speaking longer than any of the other three, Elihu launches into uh, his counsel and his accusations against Job. He confronts Job taking a different approach, but still comes to the same conclusion. Job, you're wrong and God is right. If you would just confess where you're wrong, prosperity and blessing could come back to you. There's a whole lot of words that are spoken throughout those chapters, and it's written in poetic form as the accusations come to Job, he defends himself, and there's confusion that Job expresses. So there's a lot of words that are spoken, a lot of friends giving counsel, a preconceived idea of who God is and how he works. And there's a few things that we can take out of it because these words are oftentimes spoken within the church and spoken to Christians. They're spoken by Christians. The first thing I want to highlight out of this is bad counsel attempts to remove mystery about God. Some people are uncomfortable with mystery. They want everything to fit in a box. They want things to, everything to make sense. They want there to be cause and effect. And this is at the heart of Job's friends and their responses to him. Job, we know how God works. Do right you get blessed. Do evil, you get punished. This is how the system works. These friends have removed any sense of mystery about God. 
And bad counsel does the same thing. It removes any sense of mystery about who God is. Reducing God down to an explainable behaviors and outcomes, it makes it easier to predict how life will go. So sometimes people will give you that counsel, wanting to try to help you figure out how to get out of the situation you're in. Just do this, and this will be the result. If you'll just come around and, and confess this or take this approach, it's going to be that easy. And reducing any type of mystery about God and trying to eliminate it from life. One of the biggest problems about this, though, is that the best way to remove mystery is to blame people. The easiest way to remove mystery when it comes to issues of faith and scripture and God himself is to just blame people. And maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've experienced that within the church. And I want to pause for just a moment as a pastor within a local church and just express to you that I'm deeply sorry and I'm deeply saddened if you've ever experienced that accusation that you were the problem and you were the one that was causing the pain and heartache that you were experiencing. I'm sorry that you had to go through that and you had to hear that type of counsel just like Job had to hear because it's deeply hurtful and oftentimes separates people from their relationship to God and especially can cause separation from the body of Christ and from the church. People begin to say, why do I want to be around people who are just going to accuse me in the midst of my heartache? But maybe I can help you understand why people do that is because it removes the mystery about God himself. What happens is as followers of Christ, as believers, we often come to this simple understanding. God isn't wrong. He can't be wrong. So the only thing we're left with is that people are. You're wrong or I'm wrong. And that's why we're dealing with calamity or pain or suffering. You deserve what you get would be the response. You didn't have faith. You must have sinned. You must have hidden sin. Your kids had sin. The situation was, we're removing all the mystery and just saying it's your fault or it's the fault of this person that that happened. Now, there can be some truth that sin in our life and or an individual's life can bring about hardship, that it can create a circumstance where it's difficult for blessing to come or impossible for blessing to come into our lives. I don't want to say that it can never be sin or it can never be our actions that cause calamity to come. But listen, there's also mystery involved in our walk with God, that he can't be reduced to a system of do good, get blessed, do wrong, face punishment. There's more mystery about what happens in life itself. And the best way to remove mystery that we often fall into when we give counsel is to start blaming people or we ourselves have felt that blame just so that the mystery about God can be removed. Let me share with you just some of the mystery that I've seen in my life related to this. I've seen terrible people, people who are not righteous at all, people who don't even acknowledge God. I've seen terrible people healed of sickness and disease. And I've seen righteous people die from sickness and disease. That doesn't fit the formula, does it? 
It doesn't fit the pattern of what we want to reduce it down to. In fact, Job's friends would say, nope, it must have been something else. That person must have had sin. They must not have had faith. But it doesn't make sense. Why did the unrighteous person get healed? I've seen wicked people, and I know you have too. Wicked people prosper. And you keep looking at their life. People who serve God, who deeply devoted to Jesus, who have faced suffering, who have lived with difficult circumstances their entire life. And you look at wicked people and you say, when does the judgment come? Why did they get to go their entire life in prosperity, even though they do wicked things? The mystery, we try to remove it all. And so we just want to blame people. I want to tell you what good counsel does, though. Good counsel sits with the tension that some things are not clear in this moment, but will become clear as we wait for God to speak. Some things are not clear in this moment. There's mystery in this life. Yes, we follow biblical principles, and we know that that God oversees our lives and He cares about us. But we can't simply reduce it down like Job's friends tried to do, that if you do good, you get good. If you do evil, you get evil. There's more to it than that. And the way that God interacts with our lives, there's some mystery involved with that. And good counsel is able to sit with that tension and say, you know what, Job, I don't know why all of this is happening. But I'm willing to sit with you through this until God speaks and opens up your eyes and gives understanding about what's happening in this moment. It's the best thing you can do. It's the best thing that I can do. In my moment of difficulty, instead of trying to remove any sense of mystery, to be able to, yes, sit before the Lord, say, Lord, seek my, uh, let me put my heart before you. Seek me, know me, God. See if there's anything in me that has me inclined or pulling away from you that would separate me from relationship to you. Search my heart, God. Let any unclean thing be revealed so that I could confess it and be close to you. But then also trusting that as we do that, and if nothing comes to the surface, to be at peace and say, Lord, I don't understand it, but I do believe you're good. I do believe you're just, and I believe you're righteous. And in time and in the right moment, You're going to reveal to me why these things are happening and that I can trust you in the midst of this tension. I can trust that what I don't know yet shall be revealed in time, but I can trust you in the midst of all of it. Well, as we finish up this message, I want to encourage you to be that type of counselor that as difficult as it is, to hold on to this tension of the mystery of God. Don't, please, don't reduce God down to a genie in a lamp who you can just rub and you can figure out and ask him or tell him how things work, but to recognize that there's still mystery, things we don't understand about what he's doing. Because we're going to see in the coming messages that that's exactly the lesson that Job began to understand is that there's a certain level of mystery about who God is and what he does and the level at which he works that we need to be okay with that tension. Resist that easy answers that just simplify down to if I act right and behavioralism, Christianity that says do the right things, get the right outcome. God is more than that. He's a God who is fierce, mysterious, 
deserving to be served, worthy of our worship, but not altogether able to be figured out and put in our confines of our own understanding. Live with that tension of mystery and still worship him. Live with that tension of mystery and give good counsel that walks with people through difficult circumstances with your arm around them, waiting for the moment for God to reveal what it is exactly that's happening in their difficult times. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we cannot confine you to the simplicity of our answers, that we're not able to remove mystery from who you are and the way that things happen in our life. Because if we could do that, you would no longer be God, but we would take the throne ourselves and we would simply explain life down to simple principles that are easily explained. And Lord, we'd have no need for you. But there is mystery. And you are higher than we can imagine. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And you're oftentimes beyond our own understanding. We thank you that you're so gracious and compassionate that in time we do understand but it takes patience like it did for Job. It takes patience and, and long-suffering and perseverance to come to those points where we begin to understand who you are and what you're doing in our life. Give us that type of devotion to you. Give us that type of uh, wisdom to pass along to others as we give counsel and receive counsel in these times. We love you, Lord, and we go knowing that this tension of mystery serves a purpose in our life as we wait upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. The Lord bless you as you go with this tension of the mystery of God, trusting in his goodness, believing that in time you will understand fully those things that today may not be fully comprehensible. God bless you. You can find more resources for this service at nhgj.org. Email us your prayer requests to prayer at nh4gj.org. If you are a new follower of Jesus, we have a free resource for you called Following Jesus. To receive a copy, send a request to info at nh4gj.org. If you would like to partner with our ministry through giving, you can do that online at nhgj.org giving or by mail to 641 Horizon Drive, Grand Junction, Colorado, 81506. Thank you for being with us and may the Lord bless you.